Maybe uh, this is your first time with us. And I know when you come into a service like this and you hear so much uh, emphasis on the law, um, you, some of you are tempted because of your backgrounds to kind of start backing away from this service. It's like, uh-oh, you know, what's coming can't be any fun. It can't be any good. There's no good news going to be displayed today because your interaction with the law is like so many's interaction with the law. I'm like mine when I was growing up. I mean, the law thunders, doesn't it? It, it just makes us as, as people feel the weight of our sin and our sinfulness. And it seems there, there's no escape from it. I mean, there's no escape from what the law requires. And the more you're confronted with the law, and you're, the more you're told you cannot and you should, the more you want to do what it says not to do. And the less you find yourself wanting to do what it calls you to do. And so if you're here today and that describes your life, don't give up on this service. Don't hear what is about to be said and, and shut off to it because of maybe trauma. I mean, let's, let's, let's be honest, right? The church has often done a really good job of taking the law like a hammer and smashing everyone and everything that gets in its way. The church has done a really good job of taking the law and binding it on people's back like a burden and saying, climb the hill to God, sinner. Get to God by the burdens of this law. Whether the church intended to do that or whether the church just didn't know any better or the church, the pastors themselves have been abused by the law and misused the law all their lives, that's the result, is people, people have felt such trauma in regard to God's law. But I hope that today will be a beginning, just a small beginning, for you to see the law differently, to look at it and say, it really is that big. It really is that monumental. God truly is that holy. And God's requirements are unreachable. I want you to walk out believing that, truly believing it. And I want you to walk out knowing that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, God is not thundering at you to do better. God is calling you into his presence through his son. That's what we want to do today. We want to encourage. We want to bring you hope. But to get there, we got to look honestly at where we are in our lives. And this text really helps us. We've been in Romans now for some time. Take your Bible and turn back to Romans chapter 7 with me. I want to read for you <clears throat> just, to get, just to get a good run and start at it. Some of you didn't hear this last week. Some of you heard it last week. I want to back up to chapter 7 verse 1. And I want to read through verse 12 where we, where we will go today is verses 7 through 12. But I want to read it all because I think it's so helpful. Remember, Paul spent the first 
five chapters of this book telling us about justification by faith alone. Really describing for us our original condition in sin. The only way we can be saved is through the work of God in justifying us through Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, and that's a gift of God, grace alone. And it all goes back to the glory of God alone. God is glorious and he is good and we see him as glorious when we understand rightly the good news that he's offering us. And then from there, Paul transitioned in chapter five at the end to ask this simple question. If grace abounds where sin is great, shall we continue to sin so we get more grace? And he says, by no means, certainly not. How can we continue in sin when we've been set from sin? When it's no longer over us? No, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so then the question came in the middle of chapter six, asking, so if we're under grace and not under the law, you know, since we have this good master now, this really gracious God that's loving us, can we, can we go back into sin? Can we continue on in that way? Can we go back and revisit it, pick it up, live in it? I mean, God's good and gracious, Paul, right? We're no longer obligated like we once were. And then Paul says, no, you're never, you're never free. Totally. That's a misconception. You're not free to just live how you want. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness and to God. Every man, every woman, every child is a slave. Every one of them are bond servants to something. You are today serving something. And Paul makes that point all the way down until he hits the end of chapter 6 where he says the outcome of sin, the wage, what it's due, what's being paid for it is death. But the free gift brings eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so again, he asked this question, or do you not know, brothers, verse one, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it, what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. First of all, in this passage, I want us to see that God's law is not sin, but it does uncover sin. God's law is not sin. God's law is perfect. God's law is a display, as our confession said this morning, it's a display of the character, the very character of God. If you want to know who God is, you can turn to the Old Testament, back to the book of Exodus, and you can read Exodus chapter 20, and it says what God is, what his character is. But it's not just contained in that one passage. It's contained in all of the Bible. The character of God has been put fully on display for us. So we can see, this is what theologians call the first use of the law. This is what the first use is. The first use of the law is the law is a mirror. And that mirror contains the perfect, inside that mirror is the perfect image of the true and living God. And when we walk up to that mirror and we look, we see all of the brokenness of who we are. We look at the law and we know that it's designed that way. That when we look in that mirror, we see who God really is. He is a holy God, which means he's separate from us. He's set apart from us. He's other than created beings. He's in a category all by himself. You have God and then you have all the rest of creation. The two are not the same. God has never come into being. God has never had need of anything. God is beautiful. He is perfect. He is the definition of what it means to be right. He defines for us righteousness, love, justice, mercy, grace. God in that mirror of the law reveals himself. And when we walk in front of it and we look into it, we see all of what we are not. And so what that does to us is it strikes fear. When you walk truly and you open yourself up and you look at the law and God's word as it is revealed perfectly, you fear God. That fear comes out sometimes as, as denial. That, that, that's simple, isn't it? Like we look in the mirror, we see this perfect one and we say, yeah, that's not real. <laughs> that's fake. But in your heart, you know it's real. In your heart, you know that God is exactly who he has said that he is. And as much as you try to not always tell people, listen, if you claim to be an atheist, if you claim that there is no God, why in the world then do you spend your entire life talking about God? Because even if you sit in these pews and you say, I don't really believe what this man is saying. I don't even think there is a such thing as a God. I, I believe in just the material world in your heart, in the recesses of your quiet mind. When you try to sleep at night, 
you know there is a God. And you know he is exactly as he has revealed himself. And you cannot escape it. This is the first use of the law. To look at, see God, and to see self, and to know you don't measure up. Now what that brings to you is only two things. The knowledge of your sin, and the condemnation of your sin. The first use, it, all it does is it says, you're a sinner, and you will die. God is holy, you are not. God is the definition of right, and you are wrong. And the penalty due for your being wrong is death. Now that's where the church misses it so much. That's where they miss it. That's where we've missed it. Maybe, maybe you've missed it. Is we, we see that, or we, we get under that first use, and we say, I've got to try harder. I've got to get better. I've got to go do some good things. And so you put forth a lot of effort to climb the mountain, to reach to who God is and the pinnacle of the otherness of God, you weigh yourself down with obligation and you try to do better and you keep a record maybe of right and wrong. Others of you stay under that first use of the law and what you do is say, I can't do any of that stuff. I know I'm as bad as the law says I am. I reject all of it and I will go live however I want to live. And I just want you to know you haven't escaped the law if you made that choice. You're still under the condemnation of the law. And so what Paul says here, he's asking a question that everyone asked him. Is this. People were saying about him, Paul, if you preach the way you've been preaching, and if what you say is true, then what people will do is they will say God's law is, a, is, is bad. It's sin. Notice he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? So, so one thing that people were saying, especially the Jews, is you said we're free, and so then people will think the law's bad. But, but what I've just told you is actually true. The law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. He's going to end there in verse 12, right? So he's asked this question, and he answers the question. Because God's law is not sin, but what does it do? It uncovers our sin. It reveals to us our sin. Look how he answers the question. By no means, that's the most emphatic way he can say it. It is absolutely, absolutely absurd that someone would say that God's law is sinful. God's law is the perfect revelation of who God is. It can't be sinful. Okay, well, is that where he stops? No, look what he says in verse 7. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Here's the deal. Listen to me closely. Paul could have chosen any of the commandments of God. He could have chosen any of them. He could have chosen murder. He could have said, I wouldn't have known what murder was, except the law said murder was evil. And then I would have known that I'm evil. He could have chosen adultery. Well, I, wouldn't have, I didn't know that adultery was wrong. But then when God said it was wrong, then I knew it was wrong. And so now I know I'm a sinner. But that's not what he does. He goes to the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. And he not only goes to the 10th commandment, but he doesn't even define the covetousness. He doesn't even say like, you shall not covet, like the law does, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's 
donkey. You shall not cover, covet after your neighbor's possessions, his manslave, his female slave. God, he doesn't go into that detail. Why? Because covetousness is a sin of the heart that no one can see. No one can see it. You're sitting right here, right now, and some of you have coveted your neighbor's things because they walked in with the designer clothes that you wish you could wear. And in your heart, you said, I want those clothes. I deserve those clothes. They don't deserve those clothes. She's not even a nice person. Why does she get Gucci? She's terrible. Really mean. Some of you guys, you're like, yeah, that's my wife. I'm glad you said that, preacher. But some of you guys pulled in today and your whip didn't measure up to everybody else's whip. You drove in and you looked at everybody else's car and you said, look at all these name brand cars. But you didn't tell your wife that. You didn't tell your kids that because that, that would make you look bad. But here's the thing, you did it anyway. What Paul does is he says the law tells you who God is. It tells you who you are and it goes further. It uncovers your sin. I wouldn't have known, Paul says, that it was wrong to covet except the law said you shall not covet. And when it said you shall not covet it, it, it pulled the cover back and it showed me who I really was. Here's the deal. We have, and maybe you've done this, we have the temptation to externalize sin. Sin is all the things we do out there that everybody can see. And what God's word says right here is, sin is who you are in the recesses of your very heart. You cannot escape it. Change your behavior all you want. Clean yourself up to look good all you want. Impress your neighbors and your church friends all you want. But God knows who you are and his law goes to that place in your heart where it sits and it exposes it. It reveals it. It says, you are a sinner. You can't escape it. The fact is, is that this is universally true. It was true of Adam in the garden. Here Adam is in the garden. And God says, you shall not. You can have all of the trees of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does Adam do? Immediately, he begins to covet after the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And his wife begins to be fascinated with that fruit so that the serpent deceives and takes her down this road of death. And she eats the fruit and gives it to him and he eats the fruit. If God had not said, don't eat it, they wouldn't have known they shouldn't eat it. And maybe they wouldn't have even known, they wouldn't even paid attention to it or distinguished it from any of the others. But because God told them the reality of that tree, they then lusted after it in their own hearts. They coveted it after it. Well, it's not just true of Adam, it's true of Israel. When God, bringing them out of Egypt, brought them to the mountain, he gave them the commandments they don't even let God finish giving the commandments before they start breaking the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no idols made in the image of man or beast or any created thing. And what does is, what is Moses come down off the mountain with this written law of God in this holy experience? He's radiating the glory of God. He comes down and what does he find? 
He finds an entire nation who's made a graven image and is now having a great orgy party at the base of this mountain that is holy. They didn't even let that brother get down and preach his first sermon in their off track. It was the experience of Adam. It was the experience of Israel. And the reality is, it's the experience for all of us, isn't it? You started lying before you knew about lying. You started stealing before you even knew about stealing. You started wanting what other people had in the toddler room when they took that truck that you so much had to have. And what the law does is says, God is not like that. You are like that. Here's your sin. God's law is a revelation of who God is, but it also uncovers our sin. Secondly, in this passage, we see that we are sinners. We are sinners. <clears throat> Producing sinful passions. And the law exposes our heart. Look at verse 9. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. When the law said don't covet, Paul said not only do I want to covet the things, I want to covet the family, I want to covet the life, I want to covet the riches, I want to covet, I want to covet it all. Inside of the sinner is this disposition away from God and towards sinfulness. The passions of the heart are driven now by the law. Sin has seized an opportunity in the law. And by seizing what is good and driving it into us so that we run from God, it drives us into more sin. It produced all kinds of covenants for, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was once alive from before the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, it's a very difficult passage, right? It's caused a lot of smart men a lot of trouble. So I want to do my best to make it simple for you. Paul is not speaking objectively. Paul is not th speaking theologically this way. Like he's not saying you were alive and then God said, this is sin and then you became a sinner. And you would have been okay if God hadn't just told you you weren't okay. What Paul is doing is speaking not objectively, not theologically, but experientially and practically. He's speaking very experientially, very practically. Here's the example I want to give. And if, you, if you're a kid, you'll get this. And if you've had kids, you'll get this. And if you're that young, blissful couple that hasn't had kids yet, and you go to the restaurant and everybody else's kids are heathens, and when you have kids, your kids won't be like that, <laughs> pay attention. The best example I could think of this week is this. You got to listen to me all the way through, okay? Because at first, you're gonna, your kids are going to look at your parents and say, I told you. But by the end, you're going to look down at your pew and say, I hope they're not thinking about me because it's going to get all of us. Parents, when you give a rule to your child, it is a 100% guarantee they will disobey that rule. 
Not only will they disobey, they will love their disobedience. Before you said it was a rule they couldn't do what they want to do, you know, they kind of did it or didn't do it. It didn't really matter. But the moment you said, you shall not, they said, oh, watch me. That's exactly what Paul is describing happened when the law was told to him. It wasn't that he had never coveted and he had been a perfect man and then he got old enough that they told him the 10th commandment and he went, oh, that's a novel idea, let's do that. No, when they told him the 10th commandment, he goes, I am that person, I like being that person and I'll show them I can always be that person. Rebellion, in other words, right? The law exposes us and experientially when we get exposed, we don't, in our sinfulness, we don't come back to God broken, contrite, bowing down before him. No, we say, oh, really? Let me roll my sleeves up and see how bad this can get. That's the experience, okay? So parents, when you put a rule in place, understand what you've done. You put a rule in place, your child who is unregenerate, doesn't have the spirit, will disobey it. They will love their disobedience. They will do it to spite you. They will do it to in a sense, rebel against you because you represent God and his law. So some people mistakenly think, don't make rules. But this is where we have to lean in and see what our good father, God, did for his people. Do you think God knew when he gave them the law, they would break the law? Do you think he knew that? But what did he do? He gave them the law. Parents, you need to continue to put godly, good rules and restraints on your children. You need to continue to put godly, good restraints on your children. Well, but you just said it's going to make life harder. Yes. But the alternative might send them to hell. Because without, without the law, there is an experiential feeling that even though I know I'm not measuring up, I'm okay to not measure up. And once that pattern gets established, it is hard to break. Put right godly restraint on your children from a young age. Jordan Peterson would say it this way for his rules for life. Make your children people that you want to be around. Help them be people you want to be around. Because you, as their parent, if you don't want to be around them, nobody else does. Same principle. We have to put rules and regulations. Why? To show them that they're out of bounds. What's happening when you give them rules? Good godly rules. Not oppressive rules. Not meticulous, uh, high-handed, arrogant Because I said so rules, not that foolishness. I'm talking about good rules. I'm talking about godly rules, patterned after God's rules, the Ten Commandments. When you lay those out there, what you do is you function like a first use of the law for them so they see how inadequate their lives are and what you want from them is for them to cry out, I can't do it. And when they do, you want to come hold that child in your lap and say, I know the one who can do it.
If you take the law away, good luck preaching the gospel. The law is not the gospel. But without the law, the gospel seems useless, meaningless, powerless. How will they ever cry out for a savior if they don't know they need a savior? So parents, when you put a rule in place, understand that won't fix the problem because they don't have the power to obey your rules. They can't obey your rules. But keep putting the rules on them because that gives them no hope. And they cry out, I need help. So that you can move beyond that first use to a third use. When the Spirit comes in and saves them and rescues them, there's a better use for the law, which we're not going to spend a lot of time on because Paul doesn't in this text. But there is another use of the law. I'm going to mention it in the end, okay? But parent, do you get what I'm saying? This whole idea, listen, it's popular to talk about grace-based parenting. Very popular. I am for it. I'm for it. But what grace-based parenting cannot mean is lawlessness. Because that's not grace. That's condemnation. Grace-based parenting is saying, you shall and you shall not. And when they cry out, I can't. You don't tell them a better way to do it on their own. You tell them they need a savior who already did it for them. That's grace-based parenting. You love them when they are hellions and you don't turn your back on them and you go find them wherever they are to look them in the eye and say, if you keep going this way, you're going to go to hell, but you don't have to keep going this way. Come home to me. Come home to God and trust the Savior who already did the law for you. That's grace-based parenting, okay? Grace-based parenting is getting confused, I'm afraid, with all of this crazy idea of lawlessness. It's not that. So what Paul says is, God is holy, and in his law, he reveals to you your sin. He uncovers it. Once he uncovers it, you realize you are a sinner, and everything in your heart wants to sin. You have passions and desires to want to sin. Here's something I want you to see. If you don't do this right, parents, you will think your children are great. Because there's just not any conflict in your home. And you'll think, man, everything's great. My kids, they don't sin. They do sin. They are sinners. And all you're doing is waiting until they're 18 to find it out. Because when they leave your home, they will do overtly, outwardly, what they've been doing in their heart all along. And unfortunately, you may have lost them. You want sin exposed early and often in the life of your child. And you want to tell them you have no hope in yourself. Oh, you want to try harder? Go ahead. A day passes, two days. What do they do? They're melted in the floor screaming, I can't do it. And there's your opportunity to preach the gospel. Discipline and grace side by side. So. We see that we're exposed. That's what he's talking about. Experiential, practical knowledge is. When the law was told to me, then I died because I realized I couldn't do it no matter how hard I tried. And before it was told to me, I thought I was living because I had found ways around the law in my mind and my heart that I was a better person than that guy or that lady, right? But the law removes all that foolishness. It flattens everyone before God 
God is other. I'm not him. Therefore, I'm a sinner. And my sin being exposed means I die. I die to the hope of myself, and I hopefully then become alive to God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Third thing we see here is that sin is a killer. Look at verse 11. The very commandment, verse 10, that promised life proved to be death. Why? For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is a killer. It promises you happiness. And it has subbed in for happiness, pleasure. If you are living a life outside of Christ today, you cannot know happiness. Because the very definition of happiness, as the Bible sees it, is joy. And joy can only be found in Christ and through the power of his spirit. You say, well, I feel happy. Your feelings are lying to you. They are corrupted by sin and are deceiving you. Oh, but preacher, you just don't understand. I married the wrong person. But now I found the right person. And I just don't want to hurt my children. I just don't want to cause the upheaval that a divorce would cause. So I'm going to keep living with the wrong person. So we don't lose financially. So our children have stability. But I'm going to find ways to be with the right person outside of my marriage. You are. And you say, that's what makes me happy. No. No. That's what leads to your death. And you've confused happiness with passions. You know, I know that substances, including food, I know that, that everybody says indulging in those things with no limits will bring hurt and harm to me. But you just don't understand my life. What I really enjoy in life is these things that I'm taking into my body. I love those things. And they make me feel so good. Your feelings are deceiving you. They're captive to sin. And they're leading you down the path of death Holly jolly until you hit the end of the rope. And at the end of the rope is a hangman's noose. The law shows us who God is, who we are. It uncovers our sin. And the experience we have of that is our passions drive further towards our sins in rebellion to God. That's what happens. And it deceives us. By making us think that what we're doing is living the good life. We're being fulfilled. God could care less, could not care less about how you feel. God does not always want you to be happy in the world the way the world says you should be happy. God wants you to have Real pleasure and joy and happiness in him forever. And so you can take these momentary pleasures and you can take them to your own death or you can deny them by the power of the Holy Spirit and live to God. And then in that living, you will live forever. So sin is a killer. Sin's a killer because it deceives us.
Sin can make what's absolutely wrong and obviously wrong to everybody else not wrong to me. How many times has your brother or sister, wife or husband, child, friend, co-worker revealed to you your sin that you could not see? You were blind to it. You were deceived by it. We use all kinds of excuses, but the law doesn't allow us to work around all those excuses. It says you are guilty. And sin is killing you. And the commandment that sin has taken captive of, the sin of our own, the good commandment has been taken captive of by our own sinfulness, and then it's leading to our death. Finally, God's law is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is perfect. The law is righteous. The law is holy. The law is sweeter than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. The law is to be desired above all treasures of this earth. The law is the revelation of who God is in his perfection. The law is good. Paul says, my gospel doesn't take the law and throw it out. My law tells you, my gospel tells you the law is holy, righteous, and good. Now I want to end by just not making an application to your life, but looking at the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul, I believe this is autobiographical. I believe Paul's mainly talking about himself. But in talking about himself, he's talking about all of us. Yes, he's talking about Adam. Yes, he's talking about Israel. And guess what? Yes, he's talking about us. This is your experience. If you're honest, this is your experience. And Paul's an example for us. We look at his life. So here's the life of Paul. Paul was raised in a good home. Paul was raised around the right kind of people. Paul went to synagogue every day, as far as we know. Every day that the synagogue was open for service, Paul was there. Paul early on showed skill and abilities in the mind that set him apart for the rabbinical school. And he went and studied under the greatest teacher of his day. Paul learned the law and imbibed it so deeply that the law became who he was. The law. And here's the thing. He, he in comparison to everyone else, was a keeper of the law. He was ahead of everybody else, even in the school. He was ahead of everybody else. What was Paul doing? Unfortunately, because Paul was still in his flesh and not in the spirit, Paul was simply living out the external realities of the law daily. But inwardly, he was filled with hatred, with covetousness, with murder. The more he became righteous on the outside, the more he hated this new teaching in his mind. This teaching of the one called Jesus. Let's compare his life to the Savior's life. Jesus came into the world perfect, sinless, God in the flesh. What did he do? He obeyed the law perfectly. Matthew chapter 5 says of Jesus Christ that he was not here to throw the law away, 
but to fulfill every point of the law. He would do all that was required. And he did. He lived a perfect and sinless life. So Paul thought he was sinless, but knew inwardly he was a sinner. The more he realized that, the more he hated those who talked about this Jesus who was perfect and sinless. He hated him. How do I know he hated Jesus? Well, because when he was on the road to Damascus, persecuting the church with everything within him, he was struck with a great light from heaven, and one appeared to him as the sun and said directly, Paul, Saul, 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 how long will you persecute me? Here's what I, here's what I want you to know. When you try to keep the law without Christ, you are persecuting Christ. That's what he said. It wasn't just that he had others stoned for blasphemy. It's not just that he had their possessions seized. It's not just that he threw them out of the synagogues. Yeah, that's persecution. But his persecution against Christ went further than that. His persecution of Christ was Oh, you say you were perfect? Let me show you my perfection. Saul, how long will you persecute me? How long will you kick against the goad of the law? How long will you resist me in the law? My goodness, my righteousness, my perfection. How long will you resist? Verses 7 through 12 tell us in Romans 7, tell us the life that Paul lived before he knew Christ as his Savior. He didn't need to do what the law required. He needed to realize he couldn't do it, and he needed Christ who had already done it. And that's what you need. That's what I need. If you're in this place today, and this sermon, like a knife, has pierced down and is, is turning. Every time I say that you're a sinner, you give excuse as to why you shouldn't be considered a sinner. If every time I talk about the perfection of the law, you think about how much you hate the law. If you go to God with the heavy burdens of keeping the law, and you know that's your experience, this sermon is a hope to show you like a magnifying glass the, the total futility and wastefulness of trying to live according to the law in your own strength. And my hope is, is that you're hearing Christ say to you, how long will you resist me? How long will you persecute me? How long, sinner, will you kick against the law? When will you just lay down as dead like Saul did? And believe in your heart that God's law is good and righteous and perfect and holy and you don't pass the test. And so I put my hand not on the law, but on the one who kept the law. I put my hand on Christ and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what, that's what you need, sinner. You don't need to be told why what you're doing and how you're living isn't bad enough, isn't all that bad. You need to be told just how bad it really is and you need to be shown Christ 
who kept the law in every way, has fulfilled it, consumed it in his flesh, and been accepted by God based on the law. And you need to put your hand on him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. You need to humble yourself, not become arrogant that you can keep the law. You need to humble yourself like the woman who came to Jesus in the crowd. And she had a problem she could not solve. And it had been a problem for as long as she could remember. And her experience of dying every day because of the loss of blood was she knew she was near the end. She had no hope. And she had a great crowd who hated her and thought she was unclean and thought you don't deserve to go to Jesus because you're an outcast because of your condition. But she didn't let any of that stop her. She busted her way through that crowd. And if she laid her hand on the Savior and said, if he can't save me, no one can. And as soon as she laid her hand on him, he had mercy and she was healed. Sinner, you don't need to walk away here with a to-do list. You need to walk away from here with a Savior who has done the list. Come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. He will give you rest. He will give you hope. He will give you life. There's no other place you can go and find the rest you so much desire. Come to him. Let's pray.